Hello everyone, welcome to Rexy Gaming Chat. I'm Rexy118, and today I'll be talking about the Bioshock game series, my absolute favorite game series of all time. Sorry, Destiny, just can't compare. Uh, today I'll be talking about a little bit of the overview of the game. Basically, I'll be talking about who made it, how when it was made, things like that, and all of the deeper insights into the game that maybe a lot of people who either haven't played the game, didn't know, or people who have played the game maybe just didn't pick up on. I'll definitely be talking about Bioshock 1, 2, and Bioshock Infinite. I want to thank everybody for my, my subscribers over at Podbean and soon-to-be iTunes. And if you are looking for lore in any form, make sure to check out the Lore Network. I'm pretty sure you'll find something there that you'll like. And with that, let's get on with Bioshock. Now, Bioshock 1 was released in 2007 under the publisher of 2K Games and was created by Irrational Gaming. Uh, it uses the Unreal Engine, the Unreal 2.5, and the overall director was Kevin Levine. Now, the big thing about Kevin Levine, according to a lot of people who worked with him, especially on the Bioshock game series, is that he was a bit of a tyrant. He implemented seven-day work weeks, well, plus 40 hours every uh, every week by every person. And about halfway through the development of Bioshock 1, he scrapped the idea. He didn't like where it was going. It just wasn't what he wanted the game to be. The original Bioshock game was set in space, and you're supposed to be running around and shooting, apparently, some uh, space eels. But that, get, that quickly got changed out of the out of the blue, by uh, by Ken Levine, and he went a totally different route with it. Where instead of in space, you are now underwater, which was a really cool concept at the time. Now, one of the big things is that one of the major overall concepts when it came to the fundamental ideas of Bioshock was objectivism. Objectivism, sorry, <laughs> which was created by. And Rand, who is the author of one of the famous of the very famous book Atlas Shrugged. Now you may be asking, what is objectivism? And and Rand replied, my philosophy in essence is the concept of man as a heroic being, with his own happiness as the moral purpose of his life, with the productive achievement of his noblest uh, the noblest activity, and reason as his only absolute. So basically. If you are a good person, if you're a person who does everything for your own happiness and in turn that makes you a better person, whether better in your own right, that's not saying that what you do is good or bad. It's just what you believe to be helping you get to a better state of happiness and things like that. That was one of the main concepts with Bioshock because of the fact that one of the big things in Bioshock was what is known as the Great Chain. Now, the Great Chain was the ideal that the the overall builder of this underwater society by the name of Andrew Ryan, he believed that everyone is part of a chain. It's the whole concept of the weakest link type thing. So if everyone is a very strong part of the chain, then everything that the chain connects will flourish. Everything will be strong and protected. So if you are, let's say you're a scientist, if you are a very good scientist who is willing to do anything necessary, and I mean anything necessary to further the advances of science, then you are 
a fundamental good part of the great chain. Everyone, now, the big thing about the great chain is that everyone has to do their part. It falls back to the the weakest link. If you did not, if you do not perform well, then you are not deemed worthy to be part of the great chain in Andrew Ryan's eyes. Thus, you were either uh, killed or you were not allowed to come into the Rapture Society. But now let's talk a little bit about the story of the first Bioshock game. So the first Bioshock game is set in the 1960s uh, in an underwater world called Rapture. Now one of the big things about Rapture is that, like I said, it was created as a utopia for society's elite to flourish outside the government's control and petty morality. By And it was created and built by the by Andrew Ryan who was considered to be an objectivist business magnet. And science was one of the big things down in Bioshock. And so because of the fact that you were outside of the government's control and what was known as, again, as petty morality, scientific progress greatly expanded, including the discovery of the genetic material known as Adam. And Adam was found to be one of the basic, one of the basic blocks, excuse me, blah, of a sea slug that was found at the bottom of the ocean. And Adam allows their users to alter their DNA to grant them superhuman powers. Um, things along the lines of telekinesis, pyrokinesis, um, electricity, things like that. And another thing that Andrew Ryan created was the idea, or was the rule, actually not even an idea, was the rule that you were not allowed to contact the surface at any time. So if you were a scientist and you had this life-changing, world-changing idea and discovery, the only people who would know would be the uh, people in Rapture. The rest of the world would not know. And it was one of those things, it was the trade-off that if you wanted the essentially peace and quiet to be able to find that discovery and develop that discovery, you were giving up your ability to publish that. Yes, you would be heralded among the Rapture citizens as the person who was able to cure cancer, let's say, but the world would never know. And that's just how it was. And as with any utopia, there's always going to be some sort of dark side. And that was under the former gangster and businessman known as Frank Fontaine. And Frank Fontaine used his influence over the lower class to plan a coup over Rapture, uh, basically take it away from Andrew Ryan. Now, one of the big things that Frank Fontaine really got his money from was he did black market routes to the surface. And so he would be able to, if you wanted cigarettes from the surface, you would pay him an, ex an X amount of money and he would be able to go up to the surface and get it for you and bring it back to you. Things like that. It would really, I'm pretty sure a lot of people had McDonald's brought down to them. I definitely would. Jeezy. Um, and so one of the little thing, one of another thing that Frank Fontaine did was he worked together with a woman named uh, Dr. Bridget Tannenbaum, who created a cheap plasmid industry by mass producing Adam through the implantation of the slugs into the stomachs of little orphan girls, and these little girls were known as little sisters. And so Frank, Font so using that, Frank Fontaine was able to build himself an army, and so he used his plasmid enhanced army. Now, plasmids are the telekinetic powers, uh, telekinesis, uh, pyrokinesis, superhuman powers, sorry. And so they were called plasmids. 
And so Fontaine used his plasmid enhanced army to attack Andrew Ryan. And they believed that they killed Andrew Ryan. So Frank Fontaine was at the, the top of the board. And so Ryan took the opportunity to seize his assets, including the plasmid factories. In the months that followed, a second figure named Atlas rose to speak for the lower class, creating further strife. Atlas led attacks on the factories housing the Little Sisters, and Ryan countered by creating the Big Daddy. Now, I'm pretty sure that at one point in time you have seen either someone cosplaying as a Big Daddy, artwork of a Big Daddy. He looks just like a one of the old divers in the old diver suits who has a drill on his hand or some sort of gun, things like that. And so Big Daddy technically is a plasmid-enhanced human surgically grafted into giant lumbering dive suits who were psychologically compelled to protect the little sister at all costs. And so Ryan created his own army of, in along with the big daddies, he created his own plasmid-enhanced soldiers known as splicers. Now, one of the big things about the splicers is the fact that splicers were also junkies. Um, they didn't want to be themselves anymore. I guess it was the whole... I guess it could have been along the lines of being cooped up under the ocean for however long they were that they just weren't happy with their own lives. So they injected these plasmids into their bodies to grant special powers, make themselves look different. And it, just like with any drug, they got addicted to it. And so they had to have more and more and more and more. And eventually it deformed them because of the fact that they were injecting so much of this genetic material into their bodies that their own bodies didn't know what they were supposed to look like anymore. And so in the game, Spicers look very, very scary. Um, they have some deformed faces. You'll see some with uh, hands that have been shaped into claws and things like that. And it's not they do not look this way by genetic defect. They weren't, they weren't born that way. They were born looking like a normal human being and things like that, but they changed themselves because they wanted to get that, that power. They wanted to get that rush. And so Spicers are basically underwater crackheads <laughs> is, uh, is a good way of, of placing it. And so one of the main points in time in Bioshock 1 was the New Year's Eve of 1958 because of the fact that, like I said, Bioshock is set in the 60s and it was originally constructed in the <clears throat> in the mid-40s. And on New Year's Eve 1958, Atlas ordered an all-out attack on Ryan. The battle left many dead and the few sane survivors barricaded themselves away. What once was a beautiful utopia had fallen into a crumbling dystopia. It's very funny how one slight push can it can lead that way it's just like the the joker quote from uh batman is that insanity is like gravity all it takes is one push and that couldn't be truer here and so then it jumps into the viewpoint of the main character the main character's name is jack now jack in the beginning is you're flying on a plane very 1960s you're smoking you have your own seat pretty much what everybody thought flying would look like in the 60s and stuff like that and unfortunately the plane goes down but first one of the big things that you see in the memories of jack or in the vision of jack is that you have a little box on your lap and you open it up and you see a picture of what's believed to be jack and his parents in front of a barn at their home on a farm and so 
plane crashes. You're the only survivor. Very lucky how that happens. And you were lucky enough to crash near a lighthouse. Now, you swim to the lighthouse, and then you get into what's known as a bathysphere, which is just a giant circular sub, uh, submersible that pretty much a bathysphere would only be able to go up and down at a fixed, uh, basically in a fixed direction. It's not like other submarines where you can go up, down, left, right, so on and so forth. And as you're descending, you're contacted by Atlas via the radio. And then Atlas basically guides you through the introduction of how to move and all that stuff and how to get away from the splicers. Now, Atlas then requests your help in stopping Ryan, directing him to a docked bathysphere where he claims Ryan has trapped his family. When Jack encounters a wandering little sister and its fallen Big Daddy, Atlas urges Jack to kill the little sister and harvest her atom for himself. Dr. Tannenbaum overhears this and intercepts Jack before he harms the little sister, urging him to spare the child and any other little sisters that he may encounter, providing him with a plasmid that would force the sea slug out of her body, and thus you would get the atom that way. Now, you wouldn't get the same amount of atom as if you killed the little girl. If you killed the little sister, you would get the max atom that you could get at the time. If you spared her, you would get a slightly smaller slightly smaller amount. And so eventually you work your way to the bathysphere, but Ryan destroys it just before you reach it. Enraged, Atlas directs Ryan, or directs Jack, sorry, to Ryan's mansion through the army of splicers and Big Daddy. And at times, you were forced to travel through areas controlled by Ryan's allies that have now been deranged, such as the Mad Doctor, uh, who is J.S. Stenmine, or Sander Cohen, a former musician and arts dealer who now takes enjoyment in watching the death and misery of others. Again, you're stuck down there for so long, and because of the fact that there is no morality, you can do whatever you see fit, so long as it is furthering your essentially your art, whether that be medicine or music, what have you. Eventually, you reach Ryan's personal office, and where Ryan is patiently waiting for you, and you kind of you walk up, and he's sitting there playing a little putt putt with himself. Um, and then Ryan explains that he knew all of Atlas's plans, and explains that Jack is his illegitimate child, taken from him, uh, taken from his mother by Fontaine, who then placed him out of Ryan's reach on the surface, and genetic and was genetically modified to age rapidly. Fontaine had planned to use Jack as a trump card in his war with Ryan, bringing him back to Rapture when the time is right. Jack's genetics allowed him to access systems such as the bathysphere that Ryan had locked out long ago. That was the only way you could use the bathysphere, you learned, was because of the fact that you had Ryan's DNA, and Ryan was the one who locked it out, so he was the only one who would be allowed to use it. With no place to run, Ryan is willing to accept his death of his own free will, quoting one of his own principles. A man chooses, a slave obeys. He asks Jack, would you kindly kill him with a golf club? And Jack is compelled to do so. As Ryan dies, you, Jack, become aware of the phrase, would you kindly? And how it has preceded many of, many of Atlas's requests. And you come to find out that that is a hypnotic trigger forcing you to do whatever the person says. So if Atlas says, would you kindly kill that person over there? you as the character would be would be compelled to do it. However, you believe that you were doing it under your own accord. It's not like you're unable to control your body when it happens. You believe that you're consciously deciding to do that. And when you realize that, a flashback happens 
revealing you, Jack, to be responsible for crashing the plane near the lighthouse after reading a letter containing the trigger phrase. Atlas reveals himself to be, his, to be Fontaine, having used the Atlas alias to hide himself while providing a figure for the lower class to rally behind. Because again, Fontaine was the top dog at the time. He was, he was the big boss. And so the poor people, the, the people of the lower class, wouldn't, they don't want to jump behind the big boss's ideas because of the fact that they don't see what it has to do with them. And so that's where Atlas came in. And with you killing Ryan, Fontaine is now able to fully take over Ryan's systems and leaves Jack to die as he releases uh, a bunch of security drones into Ryan's locked office. Now, Jack is then saved by Dr. Tenenbaum and the little sisters who had previously been rescued. Tenenbaum helps Jack remove Fontaine's condition response, including one that would have stopped his heart. With the help of the little sisters, Jack is able to make his way to Fontaine's office, and Fontaine, having been cornered by Jack, injects himself with a large amount of atom, becoming an inhuman monster. Again, it's that whole thing like the splicers, where you have this genetic wonder drug that you plug into your system, and yeah, you may be able to throw fire, but over continual use of injecting this, you will go crazy, plain and simple. It's just what happens. And with the help of the little sisters, Jack is able to make, uh, I'm sorry, with the help of the little sisters, you're able to drain the atom from Fontaine's body and eventually killing him. Now, games around this time definitely had a, they loved their, their possible endings, their good and bad endings. And so the ending depends on how the player interacts with the little sisters. If the, if the player rescues all of the little sisters or harvests only one of them, Jack's take them all, Jack takes them all back to the surface and adopts five of them as his daughter. Tenenbaum happily narrates how they go on to live full lives under his care, eventually surrounding him on his deathbed. Now, if the player harvests more than one little sister, Jack turns on the little sister to harvest their atom. Tenenbaum sadly narrates condemning Jack and his actions. A U.S. Navy submarine then comes to the wreckage of the plane and finds itself suddenly surrounded by bathospheres containing splicers who attack the crew and take control of it. The submarine is revealed to be carrying nuclear missiles, and Tenenbaum claiming that Jack is now, has now stolen a terrible secret of the world. The more little sisters are harvested, the harsher and furious Tenenbaum's narrative becomes. And so, that's one of the big things about... That's, that's the story of Bioshock 1. Now, with the overall mind control in the game... That was put in because of the fact of the ideals around the 50s, 60s time frame of the Russian sleeper spies, which a lot of people knew uh, under the name of Russian charm school. And what that was is the idea, the fear that there were children who were born Russian and were trained to have a deep hidden trigger that they would go and then they would go into adoption into American families, become normal citizens and things like that. And then all of a sudden, either something would be said or something would happen and that trigger would be would be switched. And that this child who would have grown up into an adult at the time or by then would become this Russian super spy and would go on and carry out their mission of whether that would be killing the president or killing an ambassador or sabotaging something. And because of the fact that the hypnotism was such a big idea and the hidden trigger, which is what you see in the Bioshock game with the would you kindly phrase, which compelled you to do things, because of the fact that it was built in the 40s, based in the late 50s, early 60s, and this was around the time of the Cold War and 
the citizens of Rapture left the surface world around the around the time of the World War World War II, and so there was a lot of tension going along with other races, other nationalities, and things like that. And so Ryan, while on the surface he or while on the surface of his ideals in Rapture, he claimed to not care about that. He was he was like if you're Russian, German, um, Jewish, Christian, whatever, it doesn't mean anything down here so long as you provide good work with the Great Chain. Under that surface, though, he was always fearful of the idea that the KGB would send a spy, that the CIA would send a spy. And he will even question you about that as you're playing the game. He doesn't realize who you are yet, or at least he doesn't put on that he knows who you are yet. And he asks you, are you a KGB spy? Are you a CIA operative? Blah, blah, blah. And so with the idea of the Russian charm school, that plays into the would you kindly factor perfectly. And there have been numerous games, numerous ideas and movies and things like that that you've seen all the time in pop culture, whether that be Men in Black with the memory uh, memory erasing device. Um, If you watch Doctor Who, there's been many times where that has been brought up in Doctor Who. Uh, What else? X-Men, big one, Professor Xavier, able to control people's thoughts. Jean Grey is able to do that. It's a higher level. Um, There's just so many out there, so many out there that in pop culture that you have either seen, read, or played someone who's been uh, controlled, you know, via hypnosis. And with that, we'll wrap up Bioshock 1. Now, Bioshock 2 is my absolute favorite game of the entire game series. It was also released by 2K Games. It released in uh, 2010, uh, relatively around February 2010. Now, it was designed to continue on with the storyline. You are back in Rapture. And basically, let's just, let's just jump into it. <laughs> so you're set eight years later from the initial game. And now, Rapture is under the control of an ex-mercenary and psychiatrist known as Sophia Lamb, whose ideas for human progression are in a sharp contrast to what Andrew Ryan believed. Andrew Ryan believed in the power of the individual or the genius of the individual, Lamb believed in the collective effort and the power of the community, the family. Uh, She constantly berates Andrew Ryan's ideas and that the undeniable proof that the self is the root of all evil and suffering. And so under Sophia Lamb's rule, the first generation of little sisters have matured into adolescents. They're now known as the Big Sisters, and they're highly aggressive, and they have the ability to use plasmids because the fact that they had grown up with all of this atom, and because there was no one to harvest that atom from them, that atom was introduced into their bodies, thus they're able to use these powers. And now Sophia Lamb sends the Big Sisters out to the coastlines across the Atlantic and kidnaps little girls to turn them into the new Little Sisters. Um, now the storyline here kind of jumps around a little bit. When you're first playing, you are at the New Year's Eve celebration in 1958, which just happens just prior to about two years prior to the beginning of Bioshock One. And so, New Year's Eve celebration, 1958. You are Subject Delta, who is the first Big Daddy to have been successfully pair bonded to a little sister. 
And so he's going his normal rounds, traveling the city with his little sister, and they're collecting Adam from uh, dead, dead citizens. As she runs ahead, you're walking along, and then you hear her scream. You run up, and you find your little sister being attacked by a group of slicers. Well, splicers, sorry. So you naturally defend her, and you kill all the splicers. But at the last second, you are hit with a hypnotized plasmid, which brings you under the control of the one who threw it, who was Sophia Lamb. Sophia Lamb appears and then informs Delta that the little sister that he has been traveling with is actually her daughter, Eleanor. Now, at this time, you are commanded to remove your helmet, take a pistol, place it to your head, and shoot yourself in the head. Then the story jumps a little bit, uh, about a good 10 years. You revived in the Vita Chamber, which is the, the respawn point for all the games, and you're beginning to receive telepathic messages from Eleanor pleading for help. As you're traveling, you, run, you encounter uh, Dr. Bridget Tenenbaum, who tells him that in order to save Eleanor and stop Lamb, he has to travel across the ruins of Rapture to the Fontaine Futuristics, where Eleanor is being held. If he doesn't, the bond that he has with Eleanor will cause his heart to fail. He will literally die. And so along the journey, you are aided by Tenenbaum's newest ally by the name of Augustus Sinclair. Augustus Sinclair is a businessman and a confident trickster, or a confidence trickster. He is the very Southern gentleman lawyer. He introduces himself as Augustus Sinclair Esquire. And you continue on together. Uh, you re will receive aid from Eleanor, who uses her psychic connection to the new little sisters to leave care packages and messages throughout Rapture for you. Through the audio logs that you can find through the throughout the game, uh, you discover that against Andrew Ryan's better judgment, Sophia Lamb was originally brought to Rapture to help those who were struggling to cope with underwater life. However, Lamb was using the therapy sessions as a means to brainwash her patients into joining a cult she called the Rapture family. Soon, Lamb was confronted and or was confronting and defeating Ryan in public debates. She was using what I had said earlier, the fact of the self is the root of all evil, which was the basis of Andrew Ryan's principle. And so in, in response, Andrew Ryan contacted Sinclair and basically told Sinclair to deal with her. And so Sinclair used a reporter by the name of Stanley Poole as a mole within the Rapture family to compromise Lamb, who was then arrested and sent to Rapture's prison known as Persephone. It's a pretty ironic name, Persephone, because Persephone was a prisoner under the god Hades. This is the reason why we have fall, because Persephone would visit Hades during the fall, and the flowers and things like that would die fall, winter, and then when she would come back from the underworld, that would be spring, summer, so on and so forth. And so when Lamb was in prison, she left her daughter, Eleanor, with a trusted friend. And that friend was uh, by the name of Grace Holloway. And Grace Holloway was one of the singers at one of the clubs in, in Rapture. And when Eleanor confronted Stanley about how he had bankrupt Lamb's property in her absence, Stanley panicked and sold her to one of Frank Fontaine's orphanages which led to her transformation into a little sister. Delta then discovers that Lamb plans to use the Atom to transform her daughter into a superhuman being, a superhuman being with all the knowledge of Rapture's intellectual elite, basically using the Atom harvested from all of these very intellectual people 
take the atom from them, inject it into Eleanor so that she would have all of their knowledge. So, And then Lamb will use the same conditioning method she used on Jack to destroy Eleanor's sense of self, brainwashing her into acting only for her goals. The, again, would you kindly. Uh, Sinclair's agenda also becomes clear. He plans to take control of Rapture from Lamb, cannibalizing his technology and selling it to the surface world. Because again, like I had brought up in the beginning of the first game, you had all of these people who were at the top of their game with technologically, musically, uh, medicine, all that stuff. You were able to find all these amazing discoveries, but no one would know about it. And so Sinclair's idea was to take all of your all of those discoveries and release them to the surface for a price. And of course, most or I would say most likely that you as the creator would not have would not gain a lot of the money. Sinclair would most likely gain the money, I personally believe. So after you've met uh, Dr. Tenenbaum and Sinclair, you jump on a train, and the idea is to take the train all the way to Fontaine Futuristics. However, you're stopped at the, logically, the first level, which is known as Rhine Amusements. You're blocked by this big old chunk of ice that will bar the train from continuing on. And so you have to enter the park to find Incinerate, which is a plasmid uh, that lets you shoot fire, you know, pyrokinesis. However, Lamb is not really eager and not especially happy to see Delta and locks down the railways to stop him from getting to Eleanor. So after you've gotten the Incinerate and you have melted the ice, you're now stuck in what's known as Pauper's Drop. And Pauper's Drop is the, the slums, easiest way to put it. And so you have to get the override keys, which would allow the train to continue moving from Grace Holloway. And Grace Holloway holds a super deep grudge against, against Subject Delta. And the reason for this is because of the fact that when you were attached to Eleanor, when Eleanor was a little girl, after she had been transformed into a little sister, um, Eleanor approached Eleanor, trying to convince her that she was Eleanor. She was this little girl who, so on and so forth. And because of the pair bonding from the, <clears throat> as a big daddy, your initial response was to defend your little sister. And so you broke Ella, um, Grace Holloway's jaw in self-defense of your little sister, which ended her career as a singer. And so when you finally meet Grace, you have your good and bad choice as to whether or not how you want to handle the situation. You can either kill her and take the key forcibly, or you can simply take the key and let her and let Grace live. After you take the key and you jump back on the train, you continue on. You were then met with another one of Lamb's lieutenants, whose name is Father Simon Wales, who is a very, very zealous uh, spider splicer who uses hooks on his hands and feet and crawls around uh, like a creepy little spider. And he believes that Eleanor is the key to paradise. And so Whale fires torpedoes at your train, which ba uh, badly damages it and hurls you from the craft. And so you have to get another functioning train car from Dionysus Park. And so you have to go to Siren Alley, uh, where Wales is set up at a temple for the Rapture family. Now, Siren Alley is exactly what the name Siren would indicate. It is where all the bars are, where the seedy bars. It's where you would find your prostitutes. It's where you would find your back alley deals and things like that. And so after killing Simon, uh, you start draining Dionysus Park, but then... Lamb overloads the pumps, flooding Siren Alley. 
and so you have to enter Dionysus Park and find the train car that is still locked down, courtesy of Stanley Poole, who promises to open the trains up again if Delta empties Dionysus Park of its little sisters. And so you take care of them. And when you approach the little sisters, you have, again, you have two options. You can either harvest them, thus killing them and getting all the atom, or you can save them and you can take that little sister and she will be your little sister. You'll go around and you'll find corpses around around that area that still have Adam. And so you would put the little sister down. She would begin harvesting Adams, which would essentially ring the dinner bell for all the splicers because the splicers want that Adam as well. And so you have to defend the little sister as she gathers the Adam from the corpse against the splicers. Once you do that, it usually about two corpses is the max per little sister, then you again have the option to either harvest her and take all of the atom that she harvested, or you can free her, which would make her a normal little girl, just like you did in the first Bioshock game, made her a normal little girl and receive a smaller portion of atom. And so Poole, after you're, as you're doing that, Poole reveals that he wrote an article about Delta and that Delta was an ordinary man named Johnny Topside. And he found Rapture while on a diving expedition and became something of a celebrity within Rapture's walls. Andrew Ryan, however, was convinced that Johnny was a spy sent by the CIA or the KGB, much as he would, much as he believed Jack was. Because again, like I said, he may have said, oh, I don't care where you come from or who you are so long as you're here to work. But deep down, he was truly afraid of the government coming in and taking over his, essentially his prize. And then, so because of Ryan's fear that you were this spy, he made you into a big daddy named Subject Delta. And after, you com- after you've harvested the little sisters, whether you've freed them or killed them, um, you are informed by Lamb that Stanley turned on him to Ryan and responsible and is responsible for his mutation into a big daddy. And so again, you're given the choice of either sparing him or killing him. Next step, next stage, you were finally at Fontaine Futuristics. Then you were halted just at the entrance by a man named Gilbert Alexander, Alexander, sorry, who is now super insane because he has absorbed massive amounts of atom. Same thing with Fontaine back in uh, Bioshock 1. Massive amounts of atom throughout a, a span and you will go insane. Plain and simple. That's just what happens. Now, as you traverse Fontaine Futuristics, you're left, you're finding uh, taped recordings left by Gil Alexander while he was still sane. And so you are using all of these uh, taped recordings to find your way through all the hidden passages and getting by security and things like that because of the fact that Gil Alexander believed that this would happen. He believed that he would go insane because of all this. And so he left ways for people to stop him. So you find the hidden plasmid lab where the horribly, horribly uh, mutated Gil Alexander awaits. And so you retrieve a gene sample and use it to get into Persephone, where Eleanor is held, because of the fact that you, as Subject Delta, were genetically not able to get in. You needed Gil Alexander. You needed someone who was um, at one of the top aspects, the top echelon of Lamb's family, so to speak, to gain access to Persephone to rescue Eleanor. and. Once again, you are left with the choice of either killing Gil, which is what he's pleading for. He's he's begging for you to kill him because of the fact that you because it's 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 too terrible. Or you can allow him to live, thus continuing his his agony 
<clears throat> this this one here gets a little a little hard to figure out which is the good and which is the bad. Um, however, killing him would be the good because the fact that you are helping him get over you're you're basically helping him out in the end. And so you're able to get into Persephone. And when you find Eleanor, you are again you you, you find Eleanor. You're walking up to her before you can enter the chamber. Uh, so Sophia is sitting there and she's talking to Delta and she's basically monologuing. And before you're able to actually get into the room, Sophia smothers the sleeping Eleanor with a pillow and stops Eleanor's heart long enough for Delta's body to shut down. And so he's knocked unconscious. And Delta is then captured by Lamb, and his pair bond with Eleanor is severed, weakening his heart in the process. However, Eleanor sends a special plasmid to Delta that allows him to take control of a little sister. Uh, she reveals that she's been closely observing his actions, not only through the pair bond, but also using her psychic connection to the, the new little sisters. And depending on how you dealt with the little sisters, again, whether you harvested them or saved them, um, she is either a, or Eleanor is either a spirited, rebellious young girl determined to win her own freedom, or a ruthless cynic who only thinks of her own welfare and survival. And so, following Eleanor's instructions, Delta brings... Uh, Eleanor parts of a big sister armor, allowing her to free Delta and fight by his side. They resolve to make their escape from Rapture using Sinclair's escape pod that he was planning on using to get away from it all after things started to go south. Now, Lamb, after seeing her daughter defy her, plans to set off bombs that will send them will send everybody plummeting further into the to the ocean floor. And so, during your escape, you are forced to kill Sinclair, who has been captured by Lamb and transformed into a big daddy. And Eleanor and Delta make it to the escape pod, but a final trap that was set by Lamb severely wounds Delta. And so inside the flooded escape pod with her mother, Eleanor makes the choice to either kill or save Lamb, depending on the choices you made throughout the game. And so if you saved a lot of the people, then you receive the good ending, which is Eleanor uses her big needle, her big sister needle, sorry, <laughs> to absorb Delta's atom and conscious so that they can be together forever with Delta guiding Eleanor's action and drives. In the bad ending, she will brutally harvest Delta's essence in Adam, heralding him as the life giver of a monster. However, if Delta demonstrated some sort of compassion throughout the journey, then Delta will have the option to stop and sacrifice his life to give Eleanor a chance at redemption. And so that is overall the gameplay, or at least the, the story of Bioshock 2. Now, one of the big things that was constantly played upon during the during Bioshock 2 was the essence of family ties. And so it's I perceive it personally as Bioshock is basically saying, hey, you don't need to follow what your family wants you to do. Um, and how family isn't always blood related. And how sometimes your uh, your blood related family may not be the best thing for what you are dealing with or what you're trying to do, um, which is still a very big I don't want to say problem, but it's still a very big thing in today's world where you have a lot of cultures who force their their children to to listen to their parents to a T, and it's a lot of that is from. Asian cultures, where you have pretty sure everybody's heard the joke or something along the lines of Asian family wants their child to be a doctor by the age of 21 because they they drive them, they push them so hard. And that's not taking into consideration what the child wants. Maybe the child wants to be an architect. Maybe the child wants to be in construction, what have you. And so again, it goes along the how your blood related family may not be the best of what you are trying to accomplish or deal with. 
And another aspect within the game is the determination of the father figure. Because throughout the entire game, Eleanor doesn't call you Delta. She doesn't call you Big Daddy or, or what have you. She calls you father because she sees you as a, a role model and she believes that you are the best thing for her. She is with Sophia because of the fact that she's been captured. I mean, it's safe to say she's been kidnapped by her own mother and is being forced to do her mother's will. And so you, as the father of, you know, not blood-related father of, of Eleanor Lamb, you go on and are being very triumphant in saving her, which goes along back to the ideals of, of, of Ayn Rand and objectivism because the, you are doing things that will help promote your own happiness and you are the, the hero in your own story. And so that's, that's one of the, the two main things that Bioshock 2 represents and how they talk about. Now, I'll be talking about Bioshock Infinite, which is the third installment of the Bioshock series. And so Bioshock Infinite takes place in 1912 where you are the character by the name of Booker DeWitt. And Booker DeWitt is a disgraced, it is a disgraced uh, Pinkerton agent. Now, Pinkerton is is a basically a private security guard and private detective. It's the whole PI thing, private investigator. And Pinkerton's was created by uh, a Scotsman named Alan Pinkerton, who allegedly who became famous because he claimed to have foiled a plot to assassinate the president-elect Abraham Lincoln, who would later hire Pinkerton or would later hire Pinkerton's agents for his personal security during uh, the Civil War. And Pinkerton agents performed services ranging from security guarding to private military contracting work. And so the Pinkertons were the largest private law enforcement organization in the world at the height of their power. And so back to Bioshock Infinite, where, again, you were a disgraced Pinkerton. You are no longer along those lines. You, you're just, you just happen to have it. And following in the footsteps of the previous Bioshock games... Uh, the world of Infinite explores the chaos that results in uh, when strong ideals are taken to the extreme. And so unlike Bioshock 1 and 2, where it was the freedom of major ideals, where the only ideals that you had was making yourself better, making society better through your actions. In Infinite, you see we have are introduced into the concept of American exceptionalism, which is then perverted into ultra-nationalism religious uh, fanaticism, and social Darwinism. So you have a lot of flags, patriotic music, and the propaganda posters promoting the idea that Colombia is a haven for so for the so-called unwanted of the world. And when they say unwanted of the world, they don't mean exactly anybody. They are almost along the lines of the, of the Third Reich and where you don't need to be genetically superior, you need to be superior in the ways of your country. So basically, if you are not American, you are you're worthless. You're worth less than than the American citizen, than this American citizen. And so with that, we'll jump into the the overall storyline. Now, set 1912, Booker DeWitt is taken by a pair of twins to an island lighthouse off the coast of Maine. It seems that the Bioshock games love their lighthouses. I, I couldn't tell you why, but in the end, we'll, we'll kind of figure out the reason why. And so you have, you're being instructed to retrieve the girl and we'll wipe away the debt. You don't know exactly what that means yet. That's all, that's all you're being told. Bring us the girl, wipe away the debt. And you're handed a picture of a girl, picture of a young woman and a revolver. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not a revolver. It's a, almost like a Mauser looking uh, gun. <clears throat> and then you get to the lighthouse 
you climb up the lighthouse and then you are, instead of a bathysphere, which takes you down to the bottom of the ocean, you are strapped into a chair, which then opens up into a rocket and you are shot up into the sky into the city of Columbia. And with that, you once you get into Columbia, you go relatively unnoticed until a policeman identifies a mark on your hand with the letters A-D, which is the sign that the false shepherd, which the city leader and prophet, one Zachary Comstock, prophesies would lead the lamb astray. And the lamb, we come to find out later on, is the girl Elizabeth that you were told to, to bring, that you're told to retrieve. Um, and if you, when you take Elizabeth away, when you lead the lamb astray, you will bring about Columbia's downfall. That's the prophecy. And so now you're a wanted man. You fight your way to Monument Island where Elizabeth is being held in a tower. Now, the tower is the large, obviously, metal tower that is in the shape of an angel. Now, once you get to the tower, you find a large device called a siphon. And then you learn the ability that Elizabeth wields, which she can open tears, what are called tears. And tears is a rip in the space-time continuum that leads to other parallel worlds. And after you free Elizabeth, her essential warden, who's known as the Songbird. The Songbird is a 30-foot-tall bird creature. It's very, very steampunk. He looks very steampunk. Um, he has large leather wings. He has hands that look like humans, but he also grips onto things that look like bird claws. And he, his face kind of looks like one of the Black Plague Doctor masks, where it has the beak and the, the eyes and things like that. And he essentially screeches. That's how you know that he's near. He has this high-pitched screech that is very disconcerting to hear. And so as you have freed Elizabeth, the songbird comes and starts to destroy the tower that she was held in. And so you were able to narrowly escape with your lives. And so the pair, you and Elizabeth, Work your way towards First Lady's Aerodome. And First Lady's Aerodome is the private Aerodome, which is uh, looks very, very similar to a blimp. It is the private, essentially, I'll call it a blimp from now on. It's the private blimp of the of the prophet, of Zachary Comstock. And so you are, the plan is, is to take the, the blimp to Paris, a city that Elizabeth has always wanted to see. But Booker directs the ship to New York with the intentions of delivering Elizabeth to the the twins known as the Lachises. She quickly realizes, because of the fact that she has been held prisoner in that tower for as long as she can remember, um, she's had a lot of time to study maps and coordinates and things like that. So she realizes that he's not taking her to Paris, that she's taking her to New York. So she quickly knocks him out. And after she knocks him out, she runs away. Uh, Booker then awakes to find the airship under the control of someone named Daisy Fitzroy. And Daisy Fitzroy is the Vox Populi. The Vox is a, re uh, a rebel organization made up of prim primarily, primarily of those of the working class, foreigners, and people of color, all of whom suffer in some way at the hands of Colombia's government and society. Like I said earlier, if you were not American, you are lesser. And so if you are black, Chinese, um, Native American, you are not what the idea of nationalism American is, which is the Anglo-Saxon white, just that's what the, the idea of what an American should be. And so because they are not that, they are lesser. No matter how brilliant they are, no matter what they are able to provide to society, because they are of a different skin color, because they are of a different nationality, they are lesser. They are servants. And so that is the reason for the Vox Populi. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Vox Populi wants change. They want everybody to be free, everybody to be equal. 
which I personally believe, agree and don't understand why that's not still a thing. And so Fitzroy offers to return the airship if Booker is able to recover a shipment of weapons from the slums of Columbia, because in every beautiful city, Rapture, Columbia, there has to be the slums, because there is always going to be the working class citizen holding up the higher echelon citizens and keeping the city from falling into either the depths of the ocean or crashing down to the world. And so you rejoin Elizabeth, and you both venture deeper into the city. And while you're going throughout the city, Elizabeth is able to use her ability to manipulate tears to aid in their journey. However, they she starts to get a little bit disturbed by the psychological and sociological, I'm sorry, psychological and physiological consequences of manipulating reality on Booker and the other citizens of Columbia, where one tear uh, leads them to a world where Booker had died and become a martyr for the Vox Populi, and the Vox are in the process of a violent revolt. That universe, Fitzroy believes that this Booker undermines her, her Booker's sacrifice, that you, because you are alive in this universe where the original booker dewitt had died as a martyr and so you being alive kind of hurts the ideals the ideas of that you died as a martyr and so again fitzroy believes that you being alive undermines the dead booker's sacrifice which would threaten to weaken the vox populi's cause and so she turns her forces against you now elizabeth kills fitzroy to prevent her from executing a founding boy or a founder boy later as booker starts starts up the the blimp, the airship, Elizabeth comes out with a changed appearance, which is a blue dress and shorter hair. As they prepare to leave Columbia by airship, Songbird attacks and they crash back into Columbia. So close, yet so far. When they realize that they can't escape Columbia without stopping the Songbird, Booker and Elizabeth uh, seek the instrument to control it. While continuing their search for escape, they they begin to unravel a conspiracy behind the founding of the city. Through the tears, an alternate specter of Lady Comstock brought to life by Comstock using a siphon on Elizabeth, again, using the powers that she's able to produce herself by opening a tear in space-time. Comstock took that power and basically pushed it towards the ghost of his dead wife, bringing her back to life. Um, you come to find out that the twins, the Latouse twins, are revealed to be not actually siblings, but rather two versions of the same quantum physicist from different realities. So there's Rosalind, who is the female uh, Latouse twin, is originally of this reality, whereas Robert, the male, comes from the other. Comstock has taken Elizabeth from his alternate self in Robert's universe and adopted her as his daughter, grooming to be the city's future leader. He has been rendered sterile and artificially aged from the use of the tear device while obtaining his prophecies. So basically he's using the tear device, the siphon that he's been sucking out of, he's been sucking the power out of Elizabeth and opening up tears in reality to alternate dimensions to see the possibilities of what could happen and selling them off as prophecies. So after Comstock has the the Latouise twins uh, create the siphon to subdue Elizabeth's power and also to use that same power to open up uh, tears of his own so he can see the future, um, Comstock then has creates a plan to kill the, the physicist. Um, however, he is unable to do that because Robert, the physicist, is taken into the other, um, the other reality, which is the one that we currently inhabit. Um, and so Comstock, after he had planned to kill the the physicist, he also plans to kill his wife. Yeah. Um, which is in order to conceal the truth about Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elizabeth's origin. 
and blames Lady Comstock's death on Daisy Fitzroy. However, in the process, Comstock inadvertently spread the the Latwises throughout the multiverse through the attempt on their lives, giving them the same power as Elizabeth. Upon reaching access to Comstock's house, uh, Elizabeth is then captured by Songbird and taken to the mansion. Booker follows, but is drawn into the future by an elderly Elizabeth who has suffered decades of torture and brainwashing in Booker's absence. She has inherited Comstock's cause and wages war on the war on the world below. She reveals that Songbird would always stop his rescue attempts in the past and implores Booker to stop this future from coming to pass by offering the means to control Songbird. And so you return back to our current reality, our present, and rescues Elizabeth. And the pair pursues Comstock into his his blimp, his airship. Um, Comstock demands that Booker explain Elizabeth's past to her and why Elizabeth is missing a um, major portion of her pinky finger. Booker becomes enraged and drowns Comstock in his his baptismal font when he begins to attack Elizabeth and blame Booker for all her hardships. Booker denies knowledge about Elizabeth's finger, but she asserts that he knows but does not want to remember, or does not remember. And so... Booker decides to destroy the siphon so Elizabeth can access her full power and learn the truth. With Songbird under their control, the pair fend off a Vox Populi attack, because again, Daisy Fitzroy has been killed by by your pair. Um, and before and then after you after you have defended the from the Vox Populi attack, you order Songbird to destroy the siphon. When the device Booker used to control Songbird is destroyed, he attempts to attack him. However, Elizabeth opens a tear, transporting the three of them into the underwater city of Rapture. Cool how that all kind of comes together, right? Booker and Elizabeth remain safe inside, but Songbird is transported outside in the water and is crushed by the immense pressure of the ocean. It's a kind of a sad little, a sad little thing too, because Songbird comes up to the glass and places his hand on the glass and is looking very sad for a thing with that's just a mask. And Song or Elizabeth walks up to Songbird, places her hand his hand is and basically tells him to let go and that it's okay she'll be safe and so he sinks down into the depths of the ocean again it's a little sad and so afterwards elizabeth takes booker to the reality surface and the lighthouse they travel out the building's door to a place outside of space and time continuing containing countless lighthouses each of them is their own alternate dimension and with each of them has their alternate versions of themselves of booker and elizabeth Elizabeth then goes on to explain that they are within one of an infinite number of possible realities, both similar and drastically different, due to the choices that have been made. It's the whole multiverse theory that every action that you that you do in this reality will branch off, will fork into two possible realities. Let's say you're going to the store, and instead of turning right to go to the store, you take the long way and go left. And during that that long way, you get into a car crash. However, in the alternate reality where you turned right, you went to the store and came back and lived on without a problem. That's the idea of the multi the multiverse. <clears throat> and so now that she has the power and she's able to control her power, Elizabeth shows Booker the truth. And that on October 8th, 1893, Robert Latisse approached Booker on behalf of Comstock, requesting that he give us the girl and wipe away the debt, referring to Booker's infant daughter Anna DeWitt and Anna DeWitt the initials AD are the origin of the branding on Booker's hand Booker reluctantly agrees to sell Anna but then changes his mind he arrives he arrives too late to stop Comstock Comstock 
escaping into Rosalind's universe through a tear, and the closing of which severs Anna's, or, uh, Anna, now Elizabeth's finger. Comstock subsequently raised Anna as Elizabeth, his daughter, and due to the severed finger, Elizabeth exists in two realities at once. Her finger in Robert's reality and the rest of her body in Rosalind's, which is what gives her the ability to open tears at will. Later, Robert, who feels guilty about his action, convinces Rosalind to help him bring Booker to Columbia in Rosalind's reality to rescue Elizabeth. Hence the rowboat at the beginning of the game where you see the, the twins. Elizabeth goes on to explain that whatever the actions that Booker had taken against Comstock, Comstock will still remain alive in at least one of the universes. And that the Latuises have tried to enlist Booker from different universes numerous times to end the cycle. But the result will always be the same. The only way to to break the cycle is to prevent Comstock from being created in the first place. Elizabeth transports Booker to a place where he went to be baptized and cleansed of his sins after his actions at the Battle of Wounded Knee, because Booker DeWitt was one of the soldiers there and has always felt terrible about what he had to do in the name of, of following orders. Now, the attack on Wounded Knee was one of the worst bloodbaths that American history, American wars had known. Now, there are two versions of wo the Wounded Knee Massacre. It depends on who you ask and basically what their alliances was. But the main thing is that on December 29th, 1890, the U.S. 7th Cavalry Regiment went into this tribe to disarm the Native Americans who lived there. Now, one reality, one version of this story is that the 7th Cavalry came in and without talking to anybody without basically saying, hey, we have you surrounded, put your guns down. They just went in and massacred everyone. Now, another version is that during the process of the disarming, a deaf tribesman by the name of Black, uh, Black Coyote was reluctant to give up his rifle because the, he claimed that he paid a lot for it. Understandable. Simultaneously, an old man was performing a ritual called the ghost dance. And so that basically what happened was is Black Coyote's rifle went off at some point. And the army then began shooting at the Native Americans because they thought that Black Coyote was shooting at their at the soldiers. And so they claim they are defending themselves. But it was just a misunderstanding. That's you see that in movies all the time where one person accidentally fires and everybody goes crazy. And so by the end of the massacre, between 250 and 300 men, women, and children of the Lakota were killed, and 51 were injured. Four men, 47 women, and children, some of whom were uh, unable to, they died later. And so some estimates the, the number of the dead at around 300. 25 soldiers also died, and 39 were wounded. Six of the wounded later on died. However, at least 20 soldiers were awarded the Medal of Honor for their actions at Wounded Knee. And in the story of Bioshock, Booker DeWitt is one of those. He wins the, he has the, uh, the Medal of Honor and he felt terrible about it because he knew that it wasn't a, it wasn't a self-defense situation. It was a just bloody massacre. And so Booker DeWitt went later on in life, went and got baptized to be, to be cleansed and get rid of all his sins of that. Now in two stories, in Two, in the two realities, in one, Booker avoided baptism at the last moment and then later fathered his daughter Anna in Robert's universe, while in Rosalind's universe, he took the baptism, found religion, changed his name to Zachary Comstock, and never had children. Comstock, who was sterile from the exposure of the Latrice's technology, was aware of his identity as Booker 
and engineered Anna's abduction to provide him with a blood-related heir for Columbia. Booker and Elizabeth, at the baptism, are joined by alternate versions of Elizabeth from other universes. Booker then allows them to drown him, preventing his baptismal choice from ever being made out and thus stopping Comstock and Elizabeth from ever existing. One by one, the Elizabeths begin to disappear, and the screen cuts to black on the original. And in the post credit scene, Booker awakens in his apartment on October 8, 1893. Hearing a baby in the next room, he calls out for Anna and opens the door to her room before the screen cuts to black. Now, <clears throat> this creates a lot of problems in the time paradoxes theory, because that is essentially the grandfather paradox, which is which basically states that if you go back in time and kill your grandfather before he conceives either your mother or your father, then you cease to exist, thus not being able to go back in time and killing him, and it's just that whole loop of making your brain hurt. And so here, with you going back in time and stopping yourself from becoming Comstock, again, it becomes the, parado it becomes the grandfather paradox because there would be no reason for you to go back in time to stop becoming Comstock if there was no Comstock to be stopped in the beginning. It's it's really hard to, to try and describe that without at least some sort of graph. But again, you wouldn't have to stop Comstock if there wasn't a Comstock to stop. So yeah, that's just very confusing. And it, it also follows along the lines of different types of essentially schools of thought when it comes to, to time. Albert Einstein had the general relativity statement, which easiest way to describe that is time varies on your perception. And the example that I personally love that he provided was <clears throat> put your hand on a stove for one minute. That will be the longest minute of your life. However, take one minute to talk to a pretty girl. That will be the shortest minute of your entire life, both of which were 60 seconds. But your perception of the time drastically changed how you perceived it. And so that is it goes along with Bioshock Infinite and how time is dependent on how you perceive it. Another pretty cool thing at the end of Bioshock is when it shows the the lighthouses, it basically explains that each lighthouse that you went to, both in Bioshock 1, Bioshock 2, and Bioshock Infinite are all part of the same universe. It's just they happened at different times. Another really cool thing, very at least visually, is that every lighthouse that you saw was the stars that you see in whatever reality you're in. So in the one that we followed with Bioshock Infinite, if you looked up at the night sky, all of those stars were, in theory, supposed to be lighthouses showing a different reality, which is a, a pretty cool concept to think about in your day-to-day -day life as you go out into the world and you happen to look up at the night sky and you can just possibly think that each one of those stars represents a different reality and how there is absolutely no way of counting all of them. So the, again, infinite possibilities that could happen. And with that ends Rexy Gaming Chat on the Bioshock universe. Hopefully you all found it enjoyable and hopefully you all will jump in next time with the next topic, which I haven't figured out yet. But until then, thank you very much. And hopefully I'll be able to see you down the road on the road of life. Thanks for stopping in, guys.
first.